Gosh, I love that song. There's some great theology in that song, right? Speaking of great theology, I was reading in my Bible this morning about how if you show up for church when it's snowing, it counts double. So good job, everyone. If you're joining us online, I'm also glad you're here. It only counts for one service. Um, but thank you for being here in, in person. Um, hey, it's the first Sunday of Lent. We want to dive into a new series on the parables of Jesus. And here's what I want us to do, a hypothetical exercise. Maybe a bad idea, but we'll do it anyway. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're Jesus. I know you're not Jesus. Nobody wants you to be Jesus. But just go with me. Imagine for a minute that you're Jesus, Savior of the world, Almighty God. And you know, because you're Jesus, that in a relatively short time, like a few months, like less than a year, the cross is coming, right? But you're also Jesus, so you know what's after the cross. You know the resurrection is coming, and then a few weeks after that, the ascension is coming, and then you're going to leave the earth behind for a good long time. Now imagine you want to make sure that your followers really get it. Like, really understand why you've come. Like, they, they really get the whole gospel thing and the kingdom of God and everything that's about. You really want to clarify and make sure that they really understand what would you do in your last few months remaining? It's an interesting question, right? It's one that reveals, at least to me, that I am not a lot like Jesus because I come up with all sorts of things that I would do in my last few months, and Jesus didn't do anything like that. In fact, I think we have to appreciate in the last few months of his life that Jesus may be unlike any human that has ever lived. I mean, certainly he is unlike any human that ever lived because if he was just some guy trying to start a religion, he would do all the sort of stuff that we would do and he didn't do any of that stuff. Do you know what he did when weeks and months are left in his life to really make sure that his followers understood what he was all about? He told stories. He told stories. Now, he always told stories. They would call them parables. They're just these little teaching devices that he would use to bring home a point. But we see in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, like around Luke chapter 14, that between that period and when he actually goes to the cross, Jesus really ups his storytelling. And he starts telling story after story after story. And it's like he knows the end is coming. And so what is he going to do to make sure that everyone understands? He tells them these stories. To me, that is such an unexpected and radical response that it, it warrants some consideration. And that's what we're doing during Lent. Um, Lent, there's a lot we could say about it, but kind of Lent mirrors those last few weeks or months of Christ's life. And so as we are preparing with him for Good Friday and Easter, for the cross and then the resurrection, uh, we're kind of walking that same journey with him. And I think the fact that he filled those moments with so many of the parables warrants some consideration. So we're going to do that over these next few weeks. We're calling it uh, the Gospel in 12 Stories what we're really looking at is the, like the last 12 stories that Jesus told. Um, and, and there's some fascinating things there. They reveal so much to us. But I also just think it's fascinating that he chose to use the vehicle of stories in the first place. I mean, if I was close to the end and I really wanted to make sure that things were clear, I, it feels like stories leave way too much room for interpretation. Like, if I was close to the end, I would want clarity and precision of communication so that everyone knew exactly what I was talking about. And parables just are not that, are they? 
Parables are the sort of thing that you can chew on and think about for years and then discover new layers of meaning. Parables are the sort of thing that like, it can mean something to me and mean something really different to somebody else. There's not a lot of precision in parables. Have you ever wondered about this? Um, like if I was close to the end, I would sit down with pen and paper and I would write a lengthy doctrinal statement telling everyone this is actually what's true. I mean, it might have helped. Like, like you think about all the things that we, his people, have fought over in the last 2,000 years. You know, if Jesus had written out a doctrinal statement resolving all those conflicts, that could have been helpful. Um, you know, honestly, though, the fact that he didn't might call into question what we do on differences of belief. And we're fighting over things that Jesus himself never chose to clarify. Maybe there's a lesson in that for us. I think this is something I would just observe. Doctrinal statements are a domesticated form of truth. They're a very tame version of truth. Parables are truth in its wildest form. Like just released, just out in the open. The goal of a parable is not to define. That's the goal of a doctrinal statement, to define the boundaries, to say this is the thing. The goal of a parable is to affect the listener. And so what these parables really are is it's a sense-making device. Helps us integrate complex truth into real life so that it can live. Not just describe it in ways that are kind of abstract. I was trying to think of a modern day example of parables and just what uh, parables, make, what makes them so powerful. And it got me thinking about Super Bowl commercials. Can we all agree just for a second, like the Super Bowl commercials this year were like the worst ever. Like they were just horrible. Like there was not one I remember. Like I vaguely, I was trying to think, what, well, what was advertised during the Super Bowl? There was something about cryptocurrency. Um, I'm not real sure what the ads were wanting me to do. Am I supposed to be for it or against it? Like, do you buy it? Do you find it? I, like, I don't understand it. But it, like, they, there was something about cryptocurrency. Uh, but occasionally, that's not the case. Sometimes in the Super Bowl, the commercials are, like, really potent, and they just stick in your mind. Like, do you remember this commercial? It's a commercial about a friendship between a dog and a horse. This commercial uh, was from 2014, so this is eight years ago. Here's a quick test of the, the power of stories. Do you remember the product that is being, uh, that's being advertised in this? Budweiser, yes. Isn't that crazy? I bet none of us could name another commercial that we watched in 2014. But this one sticks. Why does it stick? It is the power of story. This is a short little parable that has sat in our head for eight years until some random guy's like, what's this uh, whole story about? And you're like, Budweiser. And it, we pull it back like that. That is the power of this art form. Time is running out for Jesus. The end of his ministry is near. What does he do? He gives us a handful of stories, a handful of parables that can sit in the heads of his followers until long after he's gone. And he trusts this, that as they reflect on him with the guidance of the Holy Spirit that had not yet come but was going to come imminently, that they would make sense of him and discover layer upon layer of truths and something would be formed in them that would last for 2,000 years, and we would all be caught up in this movement. And it worked. I never would have done it, but it worked. So let's look at some of these parables together. I turn to Luke chapter 14. Um, 
We tackled story one and two of the Ash Wednesday service. Today we're going to tackle story number three, and this is kind of the beginning of just a handful of stories, like the last 12 stories of Jesus' ministry that just have so much meaning for us. Uh, here's the setup for this next story. Luke 14, verse 1. Here's where it takes place. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So this is a moment that is going to take place at a table, right? That is the scene where he is going to tell this story. And the parable he tells is going to be about a table. Now, one of the legacies of our former pastor, former senior pastor, Thomas Thompson. You all know Thomas if you've been here a while. Thomas is one of my dearest friends in life. If you've come in the last two and a half years, you may not know Thomas, but he used to be a senior pastor prior to me for about a decade. Um, He occasionally preaches for us still, and his family's still part of this church. But Thomas had this thing about tables, right? And that's why we have so many tables at Pulver Rock. We have first table, second table, formation table, just tables everywhere at Pulver Rock. It's a legacy of Thomas. He would always say... The Bible is the story of a meal gone bad in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that good? And he says that it's all going to be made right around the table of the banquet of the king one day. So good. That's what Jesus is going to talk about. He's sitting at a table, as you would expect, and he's going to talk about the banquet of the king. So here he is. He's at this table. He's being watched by these people who are deeply suspicious of his motives at this point. They're trying to figure out who he is. And Jesus, unconcerned with their suspicion, does two things to make it awkward. The first thing he does is he heals someone. Now, that shouldn't have made it awkward, but he did it on the Sabbath. And everyone was disturbed by this. They're like, well, yeah, you healed someone, but you broke the law of God to do it. And Jesus wasn't bothered by that. They're like, but we have a verse right here. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to do the loving thing instead of your verse. And it was this dramatic moment where Jesus pushes against the convention of the day, and he tells them a story kind of as a rebuke to them. And then he does another thing to make it awkward. He notices that they're all trying to get like the best seat around this table, and so he tells them a story to highlight how insecure and like ungodly that is to fight for the seat of honor. And so after these two moments, you kind of picture this dinner party where now there's like tension. People are like, Maybe we shouldn't have invited Jesus. Like he's just, like he's pushing back on all these things that we hold close to us. And it's awkward. So Luke records this guy. Listen to this. When one of those at the table heard, uh, with him heard this, he said to Jesus, well, blessed is the one who will lead in the feast of the kingdom of God. That's how he talks, that guy. Um, now, we don't know who this man is, but we all know this guy right? Like some of us might be this guy. Uh, Like it is two awkward moments with the famous rabbi Jesus. Everyone is like silent and there's like tension. And this guy's like, well, I can't live with tension. So let me just say something to alleviate all of our discomfort. Um, He blurts out something that what he's saying here, like he thinks that everyone in the room will be like, yes, yes, we all agree on that. That is what a good thing to say. It's like the religious equivalent of saying, pizza's good, don't we all like pizza? Like, it's, it's the sort of thing that everyone should agree on this, right? He's just trying to calm the discomfort, make the awkwardness and the tension go away. But he's got to contend with Jesus, and Jesus is like the guy who's going to be like, well, actually, I'm gluten-free, so I can't eat pizza. <laughs> Jesus is having none of it. 
I almost feel sorry for this guy, this poor conflict avoidant man. He's just trying to make peace. But there's an important lesson in this. Sometimes keeping the peace keeps people from God, doesn't it? Jesus is not concerned about the peace. God is not interested in peace. He wants to free people. That's what he's about. Not just alleviating tension, but actual freedom. God wants to establish a kingdom. He's not trying to avoid awkward moments and tense conversation. That's not on his list. And so this guy's got to deal with Jesus. What he gets from Jesus is that Jesus has zero interest in a pleasant dinner party. Jesus is interested in the gospel. He's interested in establishing a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And he's willing to create a little bit of awkwardness and tension to do that. So this man brings up the feast of uh, the kingdom of God. What he's referring to is actually a passage that everyone in the room would have known. It's over in Isaiah 25, where the prophet Isaiah is casting a vision of like the one day once the Messiah is here and everything is made right. And he describes it this way. He describes it as a feast. He says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. Isn't that beautiful? He says, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So this really is an incredibly beautiful and moving picture of what God is going to do one day around a table. And this conflict-avoidant man basically just says, hey, we're all looking forward to that, right? And Jesus, who has no interest in letting anyone off the hook, says, hey, let me tell you a story. Story number three. Verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began making excuses. The first one said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry. In order to servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads, the country lanes, compelled them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Story number three, pray with me. Lord, we want to understand the truth contained here in all of its wildness. We receive the story as a gift. Lord, may it sit in our heads and in our hearts. May it form something in us. And may your will be done in us through it. Amen. So, a little awkward moment, right? A couple of things we have to observe. First of all, this guy who brings up the Feast of the King, Jesus is like, okay, we'll talk about that. So he's giving some commentary on Isaiah 25 here. 
But instead of just agreeing with this man and saying, yeah, that's going to be great, it sure is. Instead, what Jesus says is, hey, can I tell you a reason why some people will choose not to show up? Can I tell you a reason why some people, this great thing, are going to opt out of it? And then I'm going to tell you what God's going to do when that happens. And it seems like what Jesus' point is here is to just kind of challenge the assumption that this man may have had. And probably a lot of the people in the room had the same assumption, that if you're a faithful Israelite, then you get to go to the feast, right? We get to go and we get to enjoy it. Isn't that the point of this? And Jesus has been trying to get this message through to them for a long time. This is the point. The gospel Jesus is bringing is a new thing. It is an invitation that God extends to you. It's not a birthright, is Jesus' point. And that's where he kept losing the crowd, is because they believed it was a birthright. It was hard for them to accept this truth, that this was not a birthright. It's something you have to respond to. Now, we don't know how they responded to this. Like, we can speculate. Maybe they were like, oh, good point, Jesus, we repent. I suspect that wasn't it. I, you know, I think the, the storyteller, Luke, the, I like how he handles that. He doesn't tell us how they respond because I think the point is, as the readers, how are you going to respond to this story? How are you going to let this story sit in your heart and shape you? And that's what we're trying to do over Lent. I, I, each of us needs to do that. Let it sit in our minds and our hearts a little bit. This Lenten journey is not about Jonathan reflecting on the parables, right? It's about all of us. And so reflect on these. I'm going to share some of my reflections, but I would love to hear yours. If nothing else, I just want you to let some of these stories sit in your head for a little while and make sense of, uh, of some of the truths that we believe. Um, here's a few things that are screaming out at me from this as I've reflected these last couple of weeks. First thing, this is probably the most obvious to me. Personal preoccupation is a major reason that we miss out on the things of God. Do you see that here in the story? Like it, the fact that some of these characters like totally missed this banquet in this party, like that's a purely voluntary thing, right? It wasn't like they did something and Jesus said, well, you're not invited. No, like they just opted out right? They were so self-focused, they were so caught up in their own thing that they chose not to show up to God's thing. Now, I think if we understand that, that preoccupation can make us say no to God, it, like it begs the question here, what does the banquet represent? Like, is the banquet representative of salvation or is it representative of discipleship? If you understand those two words, like, does the, the feast that they said no to, is that, like, represent heaven and saying no means you go to hell? Or does the feast represent, like, the experience of the kingdom of God? And if you say no to it, then you just don't experience the abundant life on earth. Um, there's two ways that we could take that. I want to suggest it could be a both and here. Like that, the brilliance of Jesus, it, it could be that it works both ways. Think about this in terms of heaven. If we talk about salvation and that this feast represents heaven, I don't know what you personally believe about hell, but I, like biblically what we understand about hell is like no one who winds up there is surprised. It's not like, oh, how did this happen? No, hell is an entirely voluntary place where you say, I don't want what God has for me. And I know uh, some people talk about heaven like, oh, it's so hard to get into. You've got to just work so hard and hope that you get in. Like, that's not New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is rooted in grace. Jesus has done it all. There's nothing left to do. And so it's crazy to think that in light of God's grace for us that there would be anyone who's like, no, I'm going to pass on that. Uh, but Jesus gives us a potential reason why we would. 
We are so preoccupied with self that we say, I'd rather do my own thing than participate in yours in heaven, God. And that's like staggering to think someone would, would do that. But also, I know humans. I am a human. That sounds like us. So preoccupied with our own thing that we just opt out of God's thing, even eternally. That sounds like us. But I think it also works about growth. You think about spiritual growth in the kingdom of God. Why do some of us have seasons where we're not growing spiritually and we're not experiencing the kingdom of God, his mercy and, and love? Well, I think sometimes we are just so preoccupied with our own thing that we just opt out. We just miss out on the thing of God uh, that's all around us. Sometimes we're focused on our own projects, our own successes, or our desire to be thought of highly, to appear respectable, or just we want to steer our own life and avoid risks and not have tension or awkward moments. And because of that preoccupation, we miss out on the extraordinary kingdom of God that is unfolding on earth as it is in heaven and advancing all around us just because we'd rather do our own thing. That sounds like us too, right? So it could work as salvation. It could work as the kingdom of God. I think that the point that Jesus is trying to get across here is that the gospel invitation or just participating in the kingdom of God, like everyone is invited to that thing. Like it goes out to everyone. If you don't want it, you don't have to, but it, it's out there for all of us, God's grace and his kingdom. Missing out is entirely voluntary. That's the first thing that I think is there. I, I think he's challenging us on our preoccupation. Here's the second thing that I've observed just as I reflect on this. It seems like part of the story is the, the, the idea that God really values the outcast. Do you see that in here? Like the, the master in the story who kind of represents God, like he knows his feast is pretty good. Like this banquet is going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing. He's not going to rest until somebody enjoys this banquet. So when people turn down his invitation, what does he do? He immediately turns to people who would never be invited to a glorious, amazing banquet. And he says, I would like to enjoy it with them. Bring in the outcast. That's who I want to sit here at my table. You know, if, as much as you can, if you detach yourself from your personal biases and just read scripture, you discover this. God has a deep affection and affinity for those on the outside of society. Like he's always talking about, he talks about I'm God of the fatherless, of the poor. Like he never says stuff like I'm God of the rich, right? He doesn't even say I'm God of the middle class. And I say that, I, like I've lived my entire 45 years firmly in the middle class, right? Um, and I understand middle class in America is the top 10 or 5% worldwide. So like middle class here is pretty good. We're probably more like the rich. But nevertheless, I, like I, I believe God loves me as a middle class man, but I have to be honest, scripturally, there's not a lot of verses where God shows special affinity for people like me. He shows affinity to the poor, to the outcast. Here's Jesus telling a story about God who says, my house is going to be full of disenfranchised people who would never get invited to something like this. So I, I think part of the lesson of the parable is just a description of what God's like. A lot of people in his day missed that. I think it's still true. This is a description of our God that needs to sit in our imagination, a God who is especially drawn to the poor and to those on the outside. He values them in unique ways. Here's a thir third thing. Um, and this is one of those that 
like I've, I, I don't know when I first heard this story, but I've, I've known this story for many years, right, as someone who grew up in church. Um, it wasn't until just a few weeks ago that this ever occurred to me. But did you notice this? The servant does all the inviting, not the master. I'd never noticed that before. I think that should mean something to us. The implication is this, that the invitation is for everyone, like everyone is invited, but it only goes out through the servants of the master. Like the master doesn't personally invite anybody. And I think maybe like the servants of the master, like that maybe we should see ourselves as that. Like perhaps what Jesus is wanting from his followers is that they see themselves as both having a seat at the table and also sent to bear the invitation. Like if you were to put the church into the story, like I don't mean like the building, I mean like us, the people of God. If you were to place us as a character in the story, you could probably make a pretty good case that we should act like that servant. Like we obviously have received an invitation, but we also are sent to carry the invitation out to the country roads. So there's something clarifying to me about that just as our identity. Um, That our identity as the people of God is not just the people who get to sit and enjoy the table. Like we do get to sit and enjoy the table, but we also get to tell other people that they've been invited to the table. And so it's a shift from just consuming the meal to also extending the invitation from saying, hey, in Christ, the God of the universe fully accepts me. A shift from just that to also, and in Christ, the God of the universe fully accepts you. You've been invited to this thing. And that seems like a healthier perspective that it's, it's both a, a table guest and a servant of the master. So those are three things that are screaming out at me in this. Just this idea that it's our personal preoccupation that often gets in the way, that our God really values those on the outside, and that somehow this invitation thing that he sent out to the alleys and the country roads, that that's for us too. Let me give us one practical suggestion, like one action that I think could maybe synthesize those three observations in our life and maybe bring the story to life. One way we can bring the story to life is this. Make time to listen to and include outsiders in your life. Like make time, meaning like that should occupy a space on our calendar. Like we should be able to point to it there. Hey, that's where I'm uh, listening to and including outsiders in my life. Where you're interacting with people who are mistreated by society. Like, that, that should be a space as God's people. Now, you may say, well, I don't even know who that is. Well, that's a good question to start with. Who is that? Who is treated more poorly than us in society? Make time for those people. The nature of our world is there are a lot of people pushed to the margins every day. It feels like more every day. And so the nature of God's people is to say, hey, it doesn't matter how far out in the country roads they are, we're going to go find them and spend time with them and tell them about the invitation from our king. I was thinking about this. Um, Why is this hard for us? I, I think one of the things that we have to acknowledge here is that one of the inherent challenges in doing this is it makes you give up the idea that I'm the outcast. One thing that's so astounding about all humans everywhere is that on some level, every last one of us simultaneously can feel like an outcast. 
And I, you know, logically it doesn't even work. How can everyone be an outcast? That means there's no like included people. But like we all feel that. We could see ourselves as the outsider in the story. That's part of being human. I'm sure you've noticed this. There's like this, it's almost like a competition in our cultural communication right now um, or cultural conversations. Like, like who is, everyone's competing over who's been the most victimized. Um, even like, Rich white men are like, well, really, we're the ones being discriminated against, which is astounding. Like, it's a, it is astounding, but it is a testament, not to their foolishness, it is a testament to the fact that no matter who you are as a human, you can feel like the person on the outside, right? You can feel like the outcast all the time. I think what it means to be the people of God is we are the one group in the world that stands up and says, we are not outcasts. We are not victims. We are not being persecuted. We are servants of the Most High God. That's what we are. We've been given a seat at the banquet of the king. That is who we are. And it's not that bad things don't happen to us, but because we've been so wholly loved and accepted by the God of the universe, we are never going to claim victimhood ever again because he loves us. I think the world needs a group who's not fighting for their own rights and constantly claiming to be persecuted. I think that's us, right? I think that's the people of God. We're the ones who have gotten over ourselves and theoretically at least have the strength of the Holy Spirit in us to say we will go to the truly marginalized people groups because we have the strength to because we've been accepted by our King. We'll learn to love and to listen and to, to press in uh, to their hurt and to tell them about the invitation of our king. That despite what the world says about them, Jesus says they have value because we've experienced that. And so part of overcoming, I think, the preoccupation we have with ourselves of we've got our own little thing that we're working on so we miss out on God's thing, is just by saying, hey, well, God, who are the marginalized people out in the alleys in the country lanes that you're actually after? I'll go spend time with them. Part of that valuing the God or loving and worshiping the God who values outcasts is I'll go and spend time with those people. And certainly that's part of carrying the invitation. And so here's the question. If you pulled out your calendar and looked a month ahead, two months ahead, is there a space on there for marginalized people? Is there time set aside to listen, to understand, to love, to carry that invitation to those on the outside? Whew, I love this parable. It's awkward, right? This is Jesus making it awkward. Um, it's subversive. It's beautiful, so challenging. Uh, this is the sort of thing that if it really lives in our heart and our mind, it'll shape us and change us and form something new. Seems appropriate today that, of course, we come to the Lord's table together. Um, I love, and I've never thought of this, but I love how Isaiah describes the table of our God. Um, I've never thought about that in connection to communion, but what he says, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. He will swallow up death forever. He'll wipe every tear from our eye and remove our disgrace. Isn't that beautiful? Like the bread and the cup, they represent that day that is still to come where we're all at the table with God. 
but they also represent that day that has already come where the body of Christ was broken and his blood was spilled and death was swallowed up for us. Something was finished in that moment and something new began. There was this new promise, this new grace that was extended that everyone is invited, everyone gets forgiven. All you have to do is show up, show up to the banquet. That's all it takes. And so as we sing, we're going to sing a song here. I want to invite you up to the table to come and take the elements. Um, And then as you go back to your seat during this next song, just take a moment with God and recognize this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood spilled out, a covenant in his blood, and a promise of one day what is to come. May we both remember what has happened, and may we look forward to that day Isaiah talks about. Lord, we come to you today thankful for our invitation, thankful for having a seat with you, Lord. But God, we also come to you today recognizing we've been sent out, that there are people in those country lanes and in those back alleys that you want at your feast. And so God, we receive both what these elements mean to us And we also receive the commissioning to extend the invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to the table.